Welcome to Frame Rate, the show where we rate frames. Today we'll be talking about 2014's Nightcrawler, written and directed by Dan Gilroy and starring Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm Abe Epperson, and I'm joined by my co-hosts... Michael Swaim. Man, that was the most... (laughs) Why you laugh? Why you laugh? I don't know. I just like talking to you, buddy. I like talking to you, man. Wow. Yeah. But that was the wow. mo- I was going to applaud you and then the laugh kind of derailed it. Otherwise that would have been a completely professional beginning to a podcast. Like per- perfectly oh, really? yeah, serviceable real material. Yeah. That's how you slate, real- baby. Yeah. Uh before we continue, I'd like to introduce our guest this wow. afternoon. He can't be derailed. Guest, I'm trying and he won't listen folks. Please introduce yourself. <laughs> I am Jason Pargin, aka David Wong. And to this day, I've never heard any podcast intro that was not just a disaster. Like it's just, it doesn't matter what show, no one has mastered the the art of just effortlessly getting into the show. He came in with a chuckle as well, and I hope we chuckle throughout, and I think we will. Oh, it's going to be a bunch it's of chuckles be a chuckle fest. in this movie about a sociopath. Oh, okay. Now a lot of it makes more sense. Um, mm. Did you, you already said the name, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, then I should have gotten I'm, I'm excited then, but copy and paste that to this, this, to that <laughs> moment. Man, I have been wanting to cover this movie for so long. What a goddamn good movie. Like, it's such a pleasure to have you, man. Yeah. Sung to the tune of Bone Tomahawk, Bone Tomahawk, that old classic Bone Tomahawk, <laughs> Nightcrawler. Yeah. Just Nightcrawler. Man, it's so yeah. fucking good. Jason, thank you so much for picking this movie. Uh, you picked it off our list of possibles. And I know there were particular reasons you immediately gravitated to it. So let's start there. Why Nightcrawler? Well, most people who are familiar with me do not know this about me, which is that I, like the character in this movie, used to be a creepy weirdo. Oh, I thought you were going to say film traffic accidents. <laughs> but also worked in local news. Uh, and oh, actually, okay. there we go. Actually got out of it partly for the reason this creepy weirdo thrives in it, which I did not have the stomach for. Now, I was not working in a big market mm. with, you know, gruesome shootings every 20 seconds. Uh, but it was the same kind of deal where you're having to go to a house fire and the family and the children are crying on the lawn as they watch everything they have in the world be burned up. And our job is to put a camera in their face and ask them how they feel about it. Uh, And it's, uh, we'll get into it because what this movie, this movie obviously is a very, you know, heightened version of it, but the problems with local media, that kind of thing is very real. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. I'm glad to get that perspective. If um, if you haven't yeah. seen it, I, let, I'm going to nutshell spoil it really quick so we can get on with the proceedings, because I think this is one where there's tons to unpack. And it's a relatively straightforward story. Uh, I'll put it as simply as possible. I'll, I'll truly elevator it. A young, hungry sociopath ends up in a symbiotic relationship with a local news manager, newsroom manager, uh, mm-hmm. played by Jake Gyllenhaal and Renee Russo, respectively, um, by which he films tragedies for the local news. 
Uh, this escalates to the point where he is interfering in the crime scenes, staging crime scenes, and ultimately uh, man- increasingly manipulating and coercing everyone around him, including a notable one of the only other characters, uh, his intern Ricky or Rick, I think, and mm-hmm. uh, ultimately thrives amidst the chaos and becomes a very successful businessman. And there's a bunch of details in there, but that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and I um, did it yeah. get a lot of fanfare at the time. Do you know, Abe? I don't recall this like Nightcrawler really <clears throat> it, lighting up the airwaves. Uh, it actually did really well. Oh, In fact, Dan Gilroy, who's the this is his directorial debut, uh, he had written some stuff before, and there was some buzz around like the screenings of this, and there was like an actual like bidding war uh, between some you know like A twenty four. Uh, Focus, Fox Searchlight, Weinstein Company. They, all these companies were trying to get the distribution rights in the United States for it. And it uh, it performs pretty well. Oh, it good. had a budget about uh, $8.5 million and box office was about fifty. So uh, it released to good critical acclaim, had a pretty... It's an indie film, obviously, so the, the ceiling and the floor are a little tempered. But it did as well as one can expect a uh, indie feature to do. DP Robert Ellswit, we should also mention, probably yeah, right behind wanna, Deacons yeah. as our idol in that department. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's most famously uh, he's the cinematographer for uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. So he shot oh. like Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood and stuff like that. Um, did he do Punch Drunk? Sh- he also did Punch Drunk. Cool. Yes, and Colors Abe. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Jason. So did this director, after the success of this, did he get rewarded with a Marvel movie, as is as is the path now, where <laughs> yes. you have one minor hit yes. and you're either directing Superwoman or something? He didn't direct, but um, he only directs, he's only directed three things, and he only, I think he only directs when he, like, it's his project, but after this, immediately he got hired to write Kong Skull Island. <laughs> So, you, you know, which he basically direct, the same movie, right? They say he didn't direct. He directed he Roman yeah. J. Israel Esquire, which I don't know anything mm-hmm. about. And mm-hmm. Velvet Buzzsaw, which I did see uh, another Gyllenhaal on Netflix. And Rene Russo, because they're married. He's married to Rene Russo. I don't know why that's. Oh, it's all a small Wait, club. Jake I guess. Gyllenhaal's <laughs> married to Rene Russo or Dan Gilroy? No, married Dan, to Rene. Okay. Dan Gilroy is. Um, did not, it's all did just not a know that. club. Yeah. And like the editor is his brother. It's like, this is not, yeah, I don't know. That's not the point <laughs> of this podcast, David. <laughs> what? Uh, okay, great. Um, well, I, I'm on the record as loving the movie. Let's go around the horn and do that little game. Cause we haven't like, Abe, did this movie grab you as much as it did me? I always put it up there with whiplash, uh, which came out in relatively the same era. And felt they feel yeah. like companion movies to me in terms of the intensity I felt. Yeah, uh, and in terms of character perspective and the structure of the film. Yeah, of course I do, dude. Okay, great. <laughs> you, know, you know this. Same. Brand. Uh, I love it. I love. I, I love this movie. It's a nice little uh, dense little nugget. It's like uh, I think it's got a good. It's not got a good message. It's just got a very interesting message. But yeah, like. Character perspective, meaning that you're following like a sociopath or a villain as a protagonist. Structurally, uh, this movie is Taxi Driver. 
Um, Structurally, it's very straightforward, I would say. Would you agree? Like, I would teach this in film class because, A, like, it rips. It keeps you focused, so you keep the student's attention. And I think, uh, as we'll get into, like, probably the bulk of the episode will be, it's fraught with conversation starters about the nature of media, which would be great for film studies. And, C... For on a screenplay perspective, it is like a well-made film, meaning it's uh-huh. traditional classic three-act structure just done elegantly. Just everything's yeah. correct. The way Dan Harmon obsessively <clears throat> always does traditional structure. Like he's the master of doing it right and just doing it. Uh, Nightcrawler is like, I feel like Dan Gilroy just started with a movie, man. Capital M, that's what a movie is. And, yeah. yeah, and... You, you and I, uh, really like efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like a, we have real big hard ons for that, and so we're gonna like a film like this. Uh, the last thing I guess, I mean, not the you last. You have thing a hard on. I have a boner because that's more efficient. Mm, sure. uh, stylistically and like cinematographically, this is. Doesn't this feel like a love sonnet to Fincher? Like, doesn't the when you watch this movie, do, doesn't it look like Fincher to you? I don't know. Do you mean I in the, get that vibe. in so like because of Ellswit's choices or because of the mm-hmm. directing choices? I think that would Both. land more on Ellswit. Uh, and yes, no, I do. I, yeah. Yes, I agree. <laughs> but like, it's it's the dark themes, and I don't know. We we're talking about this in the uh, the other podcast uh, that I do, the director piece theater, about how like all films during this time started to slowly look like this type of movie. But I think this one is genuinely like they intended it to be that way it wasn't just an artifact of how the um how the zeitgeist and how the industry had been moving visually it's this is more of like intentionally this should look like uh zodiac or something like that um but yeah that's kind of my perspective on this or an overarching thing yeah, the stuff I love about it definitely lands on the screenplay side, just meaning a lot of it is visual, but I mean, there are things that you would know if you read the screenplay, if you know what I mean. Like, um, the first shot is uh, a blank billboard that's white and like has tatters on it and then it immediately cuts to a shot where in roughly the same position in frame is the full white moon with gray spots on it. Mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm a thing that is a recurring theme is that he's a coyote, right? Uh, he's, yeah. he's an LA coyote, Gyllenhaal. And I just, so it's like the thing that, uh, moves a coyote to howl that like resonates with its spirit is the full moon for our right. character. It's a blank billboard, which represents the opportunity to make a sale, like the blank space where someone's mind could be coerced and manipulated. That to him is the full moon to his coyote. That is so fucking cool to me. And uh, I don't know that like Fincher framing it affects the meaning, but it just, it just affects the, I think there's less to say about the directing than there is about literally like the bones of what is in the movie. But I turn to you to be like, what is notable about the visual style does, yeah. da- does dan gilroy have a visual style that you can discern of his own um uh not not i'm not well versed enough in it in his, his work yet to sure. really tell you because he's only done like three things uh i've only seen two of them um and they both have jake gyllenhaal uh but they're very they're vastly different um yeah uh there's more on a lot of what a lot of this time, like I love the coyote thing because I noticed that this watch through that uh, 
when after he uh his horror store house story is his big break you know like that he ha- that he has by like breaking and entering uh after it runs on tv uh, there's a commercial that has slogan "Dinner is complete," and I was like, "Oh, it's like he's a he's like an animal. He's like an animal. He's just like, like a, got his he's feast. Like a coyote. He's a he's scavenger. like a coyote. It, yeah. it just it's a one of those symbolic through lines that they milk so hard mm-hmm. every second that it just works. It's just satisfying. Yeah. He's there's a, even wolves. He's always like, a coyote. You're surprised yeah. in how many different ways he's a coyote. Yeah. It's great. He looks like a coyote. I would have <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. um, I want to hear. Uh, I actually am very interested in Jason's perspective. Yeah, we gotta let Jason talk. That's why the people tuned in. Let's be have honest. at it. Talk about what you want. But I am very interested about your perspective in terms of, um, you know, y- y- as you mentioned, you worked in local news. Yeah, that's the thing about Jason is you can just say, okay, say the very thoughtful spiel that you prepared. Now go. <laughs> There's no segue needed. I didn't. I guess it didn't occur to me that this being that the word "rate" in the title that part of it is we're having like an opinion on whether or not the movie is good or bad, and it would just be great if I had come on here to just destroy this movie, <laughs> just yeah, tell you how this, you're this completely be the best wrong. Move right now. I had evidence yeah. that the coyote stuff was just an accident or something. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no. So for one thing, it just you said it was the DP that it had in common with "There Will Be Blood." Correct. That's interesting because there's obviously not like a story connection here, but this movie has the type of character arc that I like and and There Will Be Blood has the same thing where the character does not change during the movie. Mm -hmm. The arc is you finding out more about them. So Mm -hmm. kind of in the same way, like Daniel Plainview is obviously the same man at the end, but as he meets each like moral challenge and he keeps like crossing a boundary you learn what he is and what he'll do and how far he'll go. And this is the same thing. Like, the, you know, the like what's uh, Jake Hall's character's name in the movie? Lou something? Lou Bloom. Lou Bloom. Yeah. Lou does not change. But what happens is as you go and he keeps crossing these boundaries and we can even tick them off and they hit, as you mentioned, exactly where they're supposed to in the structure. Like at exactly 60 minutes he crosses another boundary. Mm-hmm. And not because he has learned or changed, he's not going to learn or change Ever. It's be it's you discovering what he is and what he won't do and how he thinks. And I like that because it's instead of the traditional thing where like a hero's journey where this person has to find something within themselves or whatever, uh, the horror is in use under seeing more of like the landscape of his psychology and as it unfolds and as he confronts each each of these people. And then obviously the overall theme is the scary part is how well, just like in There Will Be Blood, how perfectly he fits into capitalism. Like, you know, that this mm-hmm. this slimy reptile of a person is like perfectly geared for what the market wants, which is, you know, someone who will cross the police tape and put a, a camera right in the face of a dying person, you know, because we, we want to see it. And then you, we at home don't like to think about how you got that shot. Um, but it doesn't matter. It, it's, you know, it, competition says whoever has the most, you know, graphic footage or whatever wins. And so this, it, it's, it's a format that I love where it's like, this is a type of person 
where this is what you have to be to some degree to survive in this world. Obviously, again, it's a much more lurid and it's, it's a fictionalized version of it. But to mm. some degree, being a journalist, even being a great journalist, is all about mm. being willing to like violate social norms, violate people's privacy to, you know, to kind of like you can't be a polite journalist. You just can't. Uh, it's just you're hopefully... That hopefully comes out when but, you're like talking to a corrupt politician. Yeah, we imagine it when you're like, "Excuse me, sir, this is uh, this isn't right." But not when you're like, uh, "Your house is burning down. Talk about it. Come on, we need the footage. Go." Yeah. Also, you're stepping in my light. Uh, you know, it's like that kind of stuff. Yeah, because that was the thing that was discouraging to me. Because I went to school, I got a journalism degree, and then even before I graduated, I got a job as a morning producer at our local ABC affiliate, which may sound impressive, but it was a small city. So, like, the market was not covering any of the major cities around us. So, it, like, the viewership was not that high, but it was still a real, like, local TV operation. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But what's discouraging about it is not... Like the times when we would intentionally like arrange a crime, like we, of course, would not do that unless it was really right on news that day. But you realize very fast that you're making a an entertainment product because, mm. for example, we would cover a house fire, which, to be honest, is not news. It's a house burned down. Like you don't you don't know these people. Uh, you know, if it was mm. a, like a serial arsonist, there may be some interest to the viewers. But but it's not your business in some ways. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. you didn't need to inject that trauma into your brain necessarily. But we will we would cover house fire if we had flame footage, charred post fire footage. We wouldn't. Right. That's not news. It's news because flames look, a burning house looks amazing. And they used to talk about getting the wall collapse shot. If, you've, if there's like a big building structure fire and there's a moment when one of the walls falls in and there's a big like belching ball of flame and that can, Jeez. and that's like your teaser shot that, that can tease right. the newscast. When you open up the yep. newscast, you got the quick montage of the stories. It's like, boom, there's your teaser. Like that's what you're looking for. And if, and that's the sizzle kid. Yeah. And just like as is depicted in this movie, if you get there a few minutes too late, you know, you missed the news, which in re it, logically that's insane because the, the thing that happened, you know, an old warehouse burned down is the same either way. But in TV mm -hmm. news, it's about what you can show people. And with local news here. Like when they talk, because the whole premise, this guy does not work for the, the TV station. He's a stringer is what is the language right. we would use. You just, he's a freelancer where they go out. And because again, a TV station cannot employ that many full-time camera crews and, and news crews. So you buy from these freelancers that will get you the shot of the car accident. Cause so you can get the information from the cops or from their press release, but the visuals, you have to have somebody who happened to be there. So this job does exist. Now, I'm sure it's not as sleazy as it's depicted here, but everything you're covering is based around these limitations. Like, in, for instance, in what, at Station Arrive worked, we had two vans and two, so you could have two camera crews. The crew was just the reporter and the camera person. Oh, you Bill Paxton did. <laughs> that's his big plan in the movie is to get two vans and cover each half of the city. And for that slight... Of course, uh, Lou Bloom has to kill him ultimately, <laughs> right? <laughs> but uh, but you, when you think about it, when you like we were covering a pretty large area, so you're literally in order to cover a story, it's got to be something that where the van can get there, get video, and then get back in time to edit it for the show. 
So mm. when you're picking what news you're going to cover that day, it's literally which two things that are less than a van drive away <laughs> where we, we can most dramatic. We can looking. spend we'll be on fire. Yeah. We can spend 20 <laughs> minutes there filming whatever, and then get back. And so that's how you decide what you're going to cover. It's because <sighs> you don't have infinite ability to dispatch people. News it's, is nonsense. Yeah. It's really so revealing. What the, what she talks about um, Renee Russo's character that, the, and I think she, her title is the news director at that station is yeah. or I think Jake Gyllenhaal actually throws these stats in her face that they overwhelmingly mm. cover crime and accidents and spend a tiny tiny amount of time per year like minutes a year on things that are big policy things you know changes in the law stuff that you need to know and otherwise it's it's just you know drive-by shootings accidents building fires you know, if a plane ever crashed, like that's the amazing footage, like, like a, a which is why, yeah, crash. he he immediately as a sociopath calls them out on their bullshit because their bullshit is a place where he can thrive. He's like, I can get you this and I'll prove to you that it's valuable to you. But of course, it's also just a great screenwriting trick again, because in a way that doesn't feel forced, he gets to Dan Gilroy gets to drop in this really depressing data block that sort of washes over you about local news's priorities. It's a great scene. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, no, but, and in general, also like he as a character symbolizes the system because when you hear his thought processes, it's always just pure like calculation. Like here's how much right. leverage I have in this conversation. Here's what I, I require from you. And he talks like it's just the bottom line. He's, he's a specific kind of sociopath where he doesn't enjoy suffering necessarily He's just figured out, oh, this is what you want. Okay, I'll get it. That's it. There's nothing else to be considered here. There's no emotion. There's no, and that's the way the market works. If you're competing with these other stations, no <clears throat> sentimentality yeah. or any kind of like noble notions about the role of news in society, that doesn't play into it. If this is what people want to watch, this is what they get. Two small things on that. I love how they do one, his relationship with Rene Russo. He, speaks about it like because he's basically trying to get her to have sex with him uh at a certain point and he he like describes it as a mutually like beneficial kind of arrangement um and so that shows the even in romantic like his solve for romance and for you know like the is to the, explain to someone why they have to be with him yeah, yeah exactly and the other thing is i thought it's a nice touch that uh in the movie uh, the only he doesn't have any friends or anything, um, but he takes care of a plant. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just like the idea of him not, like taking care of something that's not human. That's easy to take care of. You can be a sociopath and take care of a plant very easily. You know, you don't have to yeah. be connected. It doesn't there's no back and forth. It's just a, a, a order of events. Water it. And that's it. You but know? the scene you're referring to, I just want to underscore how. What an amazing horror scene that is, because I think that's one of the most impactful scenes of, like Jason said, his agenda unfolding like you're you don't understand how far he's going to go. And as the scene continues on, it's just people talking. And yet I you feel dawning horror like you would in a monster movie because of the 
what nature of beast is man of it all like of the fact that oh he's gonna pursue that tactic (laughs) and it's just refreshing to me as someone who write has written scripts for so long and thinks of what can it what could this character do next that'll really wow him that'll really jazz him and be like fresh when you see something like this and you're like wow it went farther than i could imagine and i spent all my time trying to imagine how far characters can go and they didn't do it because like he stood up and killed someone it's just the the tactics that he's employing are unforgivable and that's so awesome and that's I think that's why I, it just occurs to me that's one of the ways it resonates with Whiplash because I have that same feeling about the sequence where the car accident happens and you're like alright better hit the old dusty trail that's that sequence wow really went out with a bang and then he gets up and walks away from the car accident and keeps going and you're like I didn't know you could go that far this is yeah. amazing I don't know what the fuck is going to happen next. Um, So, yeah, it is. It's the tip. It's the iceberg effect and slowly understanding how so how cold he is uh, and Mm -hmm. how well that suited to Renee Russo, who is like good at her job, quote unquote, because she has grand plans to build a narrative. Like I would say, I mean, Jason, back me up or correct me, but I feel like she seems excellent at her job or she also is, is fitting her function perfectly at the news station by like building narrative, building entertainment narratives. She doesn't just take whatever is given to her and say, this is what happened. So this is what we report. She takes the, potential story beats available to her and thinks about what the season arc of the news is going to be. I don't know that anyone, if there was anyone who was thinking in those terms, they didn't say it out loud. It's more just everyone, not in the newsroom, but the people on the station. Because again, when you own a TV station, the news is the entire thing. Like the TV station, it was literally just a studio with the news in an office where they sell ad space. So when I talk about like local TV and local TV news, they're kind of one and the same. Whatever business owns that local affiliate, the news is that's like their main profit driver. It's it's kind of uh, like the crown jewel because that's the one thing they actually make. So the needs of the business and the needs to get people to watch, you don't have to be told that the threat of violence sells. You don't have to be told that when they're you know, like I'm from tornado country and if there's a you know tornado warning that if you cut into you know programming that you're going to get incredible ratings. So they do it at every opportunity because people want to know if they're going to die. That you don't you don't need to sit down and tell have a meeting saying, look, people, we're trying to scare white people into watching our show. They don't need to say that. But we did have you know, the uh, how whenever there's like a big storm coming, not like a hurricane, but like a, a winter storm, they'll name it something clever. And right. we've even uh, they joke about it on The Simpsons, like a class five kill storm or something like that. Bearing down or on the, us like a shotgun full of snow. Yeah. They, or like they'll call it the Arctic mega blast. Well, we had a meeting about that, about the need to brand a story because then you claim it as your own. So if there's been some like a big plane crash or something, you come up with a name for that, a catchy name, and then you use that throughout the broadcast. And then now you've claimed it as like you own that story because you named it. You know, the same as whatever genius named the Watergate scandal, Watergate, you know, like now that's a part of the language. But somebody named it that and started calling it that the Watergate scandal instead of the Nixon break-in scandal or instead of right. something else, like putting that term on there. And it was so catchy and it stuck in the language. 
So the fact that it's a business, you don't, it's the same as working at a website. You, you're not allowed to forget it for more than five minutes. Like it's, yeah. it's the business. And as we now know, obviously we're, it, people listening to this, uh, if you don't realize like Donald Trump is president. Mm-hmm. And uh, one one way that happened was in America, even though like violent crime has been dropping since the 90s, since the crack epidemic, fear of violent crime keeps going up and up and up. Right. And we blame like Fox News for that or the Internet. It's really local news that drives that because they will spend half of their broadcast. Yeah. And the thing she talked about that people, your audience are people who live in safe neighborhoods and you need to scare them into the idea that the chaos of the cities is coming to the is is coming to you because this is the thing is that people scared of crime vote Trump and then you hear that people in rural areas vote Trump and the crime is mostly concentrated in the cities but the cities vote democrat and it's like well that doesn't make sense why would the people who live in these relatively peaceful areas go for the anti-crime candidate using like all these racist dog whistles about inner city crime, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. It's because they sit down and they watch local news and they hear about how in the nearby city, it's just a bloodbath. It's just nonstop. There's another child that's been murdered. And the people who are most scared of crime are people in peaceful suburbs and small towns who, these are the people who buy the the assault rifles. These are the people who are passionate about having guns at arm's length, even though they will live their entire lives and never have a break-in. Meanwhile, somebody that lives in the city has had a break in once a year for five straight years and they just kind of live with it. And they don't they don't necessarily get caught up in that same narrative about like we've got to crack down. We've got to we've got to stop these these animals, these thugs or whatever, whatever slur they want to use where everyone knows what they actually mean. Mm-hmm. That's local news because there's even a term for it. They call it mean world syndrome. It's where if you watch a lot of TV and local news you will come away thinking that you're in a world of just deathly violence and that you're you're on the verge of being shot to death at any moment or you know so oh there was a very interesting similar study about uh how cop beat cops become racist because they'll work the beat the night shift in a neighborhood that's predominantly one ethnic group and they only interface with that ethnic group because they don't have friends other than other cops or white people um, who have committed crimes. And their brain just thinks, oh, all fill in the blanks, commit crimes. It's like becomes a subconscious reinforcement that is like demonstrably. Uh, they did a thing where they just switched, like rotated who d- took the night and day shift and found that the police force became immediately less. I mean, there's way more problems with the, I'm a defund guy, but let's not get into that. I mean, I guess let's get into it. Cause it's kind of what the movie's about. I do think that's why Lou Bloom, which by the way, how great is it that his name sounds like a coyote howling? Yeah. Lou Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, he's racist. Like we see several instances where, and it's not, he is not, uh, he doesn't really have hate in him. So he's not racist out of fear and hate in the way that your average racist, usually I would say the bulk of racists are racist because they fear and fear leads to hate. Um, but he is racist in that racism appeals to him. Because it mathematically sorts people. It's like him saying, no, you do this society. 
you value people by skin color, so I adopt that because I'm trying to navigate with efficiency to the top of society. So he uses racism continuously throughout the movie when he's like, no, we don't want that those kind of victims they have in that neighborhood, or this will work better right. if the shootout happens in a white neighborhood. He understands the narrative that Renee Russo is building and is giving her what she wants, and it's just so interesting to me that that makes so much horrible sense that a sociopath racism would appeal to them because you don't have to understand people if you can sort them by race it's a system that makes sense to a sociopath mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's one of the elements of horror that i love um this is not a horror film but kind of what you were talking no, about thriller i guess yeah, yeah yeah but what you were talking about in that moment where they're at the um uh mexican place there there's like they they understand that there's a there's a horrifying thought and then once that sticks with you it like you can't leave you in a very effective way uh and one way that they kind of pull that off is that you realize that like uh the the he's not making the argument that like society you are this way and i'm just a reflection of you like that it's less about him making an argument and more about just what could one do like what what could one person actually get away with you know is like and then you start you have that moment where you look at like renee russo plays it very very well where she has that moment where she realizes oh that's what this is that's what this conversation is all about you just want to fuck me uh and she kind of just like her super entire, well written scene yeah. and well acted scene yeah yeah and she her entire uh, energy changes because then she knows like, oh, okay, this is what this is now. And um, it's basically uh, this movie to me feels like just a series of reveals of that twist. Uh, and we just keep getting darker and darker and darker and pushing further and further and further. And then reflectively saying that is that success that he's a virus that is infecting like this world. <laughs> and Every time that he gets a victory, uh, he's given more money for it. You know, the horror is watching our protagonist succeed. Yeah, exactly. Can I um, read some lines from that scene so I can yeah. cross them off my notes? Uh, yeah. For, well, in that scene, he says the line, I want to be the guy that owns the station that owns the camera, which I just really love his like gluttony for getting, you know, stuff up and up and up. Yeah. Um, but And that's when he drops the whole data block about what they're interested in and explains his value and explains that I'd also like to be close to you. I like older women. And then he says, I want that with you, just like you want to keep your job and your health insurance. And that's the tip off. And that is yeah. such a fucking creepy good tip off. Mm. Just And, and uh, later on. The lines I wrote are, uh, the true price of any item is what someone's willing to pay for it. She says, friends don't pressure friends to fuck them. And he says, they do. A friend is a gift you give yourself, which I just love his complete sociopathic misunderstanding because uh, that pairs with the opening sequence, which is, by the way, screenwriters, great trick. At the end of the movie, Rick will say it to him. That's for the people in the back who need it spelled out for them. Rick says, you know what your problem is, man? You don't fucking understand people. But the thing is, we already knew that. That's just crystallizing. Now, a bad movie would have that line in the beginning. 
because they wouldn't understand how to get it across any other way. But a good movie has that line at the end mm-hmm. because it's just a crystallizing <clears throat> resonance. At the beginning, what you see is him trying to get a job on a construction site after selling them stolen goods. And you can tell that he's very smart and he's a very good salesman, but the guy shuts him down with the simple line, why would I hire a fucking thief? And that shows but doesn't tell, oh, he's really smart, but he doesn't understand basic things about how humans work. Like that's why he lost in that situation. That's very obvious. Like, why would you try to get hired by someone after immediately trying to sell them stolen, immediately after trying to sell them stolen goods? But he just doesn't understand the basic shit. And I think Mm -hmm. in the same way, a friend is a gift you give yourself means that making friends with people enriches your life. But he takes it to mean a friend is something you take and give to yourself by force. I love, like, it's like Lucille, it's like Lucille Blue saying, hurt people hurt people i like that (laughs) that's what i was saying though about the the character is kind of there to symbolize uh, capitalism because you hear him say things like you keep talking about his leverage in a situation or like you know you you will do this for me because you want this and the price of something is what somebody is willing to pay that you know everything is just stripped down to it's he almost plays the part like an alien who came to earth and put on a human suit and mm-hmm. is just trying to learn the rules of humanity. And so, cause he keeps citing like, well, I looked this up and I looked up this slogan and I looked up these stats and that's how he knows. Like that's partly how he knows to, to exploit racism. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. White people are scared of inner city crime coming to the suburbs. So you need white victim, uh, you know, a minority assailant. That's, that's the good stuff. Let's go find that. And it's just a pure cold calculation. He's not trying to advance the cause of white supremacy. He he wouldn't care enough about that. It, he just calculated mm-hmm. this gets you the most money at the you know the shortest possible time. And with her, like he has decided that he likes being alone because it lets him get away with things. You don't have to explain yourself. But he has certain physical needs, so he'll just make her give it to him because he has leverage. And there's no sentiment. There's no. Uh, like worrying about how she feels about it. It's just, this is, it's all bottom line. He's just like a, like a robot or a spreadsheet. Yeah. And how good is her delivery? I love that they don't, you never see a sex scene between them because it would be so fucking horrible. I mean, it's coerced sex. Um, But you get it all from her delivery the next day when he fails to deliver a good clip and she goes, I want what you fucking promised me. It's like, do you, I just, that wrenched my heart out. Like you understand everything she went through. Now I want the fucking goods, you piece of shit. <laughs> it's, Renee Russo, I think, uh, just slays in her scenes all throughout. Yeah. Cause it's also about playing the balance of she is her, she, her, she's also a monster. Um, it's, it's her narrative. So there's not a lot of sympathy for the devil here, but you do see how she is slightly more connected to humanity and she doesn't seem entirely sociopathic. She just seems a little like evilish, uh, you know, she's like a normal person who justifies evil things to herself, but she's not a sociopath. I agree. Yeah. She doesn't make mistakes like he does either. Um, it's um, I love that one moment where Rick they're driving, uh, following the SUV. Poor Rick, and uh, Lou with his money bought this 
tacky red charger you know mm-hmm. like it's not a good car to follow someone with of it's course a good car for a coyote though yeah but obviously for lou that doesn't matter because he's gonna get in there and get what he needs and be gone before you, that matters because he just wants to go fast he just wants to go fast and well it's also a common thing among sociopaths and i think this is played out in the movie uh, that they are adrenaline junkies because it approximates being able to feel something. So I think mm-hmm. he drives fast. The job appeals to him because of the adrenaline rush of it all. I think that is an aspect of his voraciousness. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think Rene Russo wouldn't make those kinds of mistakes, doesn't fall for that kind of stuff, is just very opportunistic in her approach. And also, I like that they added that she's like also tired. You know, there's a little bit mm. of... Like, man, I just thought I'd be in a better place in my career, so I'm going to be desperate. I'm going to make desperate Hail Mary passes. Um, and that's a reality of capitalism. Uh, you know, There's also... Some people oh, do I'm that. Sorry. No, no, no. There's also a little bit of local journalism inside baseball in there that you guys may have missed where they mentioned kind of in passing that she never stays at a station for more than two years um that she kind of hops mm. from contract to contract yep. and she's in a situation where it's clear she would like to stay there because she's made it to la and this is something where the other issue i had with working in the industry is that if you are working at a very small tv station the way you advance and get a promotion is not by getting a better job at that station it's by moving to a bigger market. So if you're a photographer in whatever, Champaign, Illinois, some you know some medium-sized city like that, you're looking to get a job in Chicago. And if you're in Chicago, mm-hmm. you're looking to get a job in New York or LA, like you're you know you're you're constantly looking at you're just moving 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 because every time you're advancing in your career, it's not oh I got promoted from photographer to senior photographer. It's like I got promoted from being a photographer in small town to medium city and then from there to Miami or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We see that. I mean, we saw that I haven't worked for a lot of corporations, but the ones that I have worked with, I've always noticed that the general man, not the general manager, but like the, the CEOs and uh, the higher ups, they move on very quickly, yeah. you know, here's mm-hmm. why. And I think that, yeah, it's just the industry type. Here's why that's a problem in journalism. This is why they intentionally added that to this movie is in journalism to do it right. Like if you're working for a proud newspaper that's been covering the same city for a long time, you want reporters that have been there for 40 years because they learn everything about the history of the city council and about the the different neighborhoods and how they interact and the different trends with the neighborhoods and where they're going and, and, and all these really important things that are the lifeblood of the city about all of the subcultures and all that. And so the people that have been there for decades, have been good journalists for decades, they know on a first name basis, all the city officials, they know who to call at all of these different organizations and institutions to find out the real bottom line about what's going on. They build up a, a great network of sources who will leak them things about some scandal or about the important stuff that the journalism is supposed to do, which is be a check on corporate power, government power, by informing the public and keeping them on top of what's happening, you know, and so you have this, you, you imagine like an, an old movie type newspaper journalist, you picture like a guy with a cigar and, you know, and he's working the phones or knocking on doors and stuff like that. When you build a world of TV news, 
the reputation it has is that you have a bunch of anchors and reporters who all aspire to like work in entertainment somehow. Like they wish they had been actors or something like that. And mm-hmm. when they just hop from city to city, they don't have any kind of like of those roots or the deeper understanding of the culture or anything like that. They don't have any kind of a sense of the history and trying to like orient their the, their audience about what they need to know. They're just there to try to get a certain number of ratings and bring in a certain amount of revenue so they can get the bigger and better job elsewhere. Like there's, they don't have any local roots. Um, so that's like always been a criticism of, of TV news, of local TV news, the way it's happened now is that like none of those people are of the community. They went to school in LA, got a job in Colorado because that was the opening they could find. And the moment they arrived there, they immediately started mm-hmm. dreaming of a job in New York. And so after a few years, they'll be gone. Yeah. So does that mean she's succeeded her way to L.A.? Like that, because that's a big market, I would assume. Yeah, but it also... Is the fact that she's the night shift mean she's not at the top? Correct. She's still got a lot of room. That's not the job anybody wants, because it's, you're obviously the hours, and then, you know, like the the ratings are lower, and she's at the the lowest of the three. So she's, she's made it high enough in the industry that she's probably doing well, but clearly, you know, kind of wishes... And again, like like women in a lot of industries, they the way they get treated once they reach a certain age, and you know they intentionally cast someone who is perceived as being like on the edge of losing their their beauty or whatever. Um, so in in industry that kind of favors a lot of very shallow stuff, and there's even the part where right. Jake Gyllenhaal's like, "Well, you're way prettier than he like names the anchor of the." of the nighttime mm-hmm. news or whatever. So they intentionally chose someone who had had a lot of years in the business, but probably mm-hmm. was unsatisfied with where they were and that they they hop around, but really emphasizing that this person doesn't know these neighborhoods. She's purely, like you mentioned earlier, that they're like coming up with the story arcs. Well, that's how she sees it. Like she came from wherever she came from. Maybe she did, you know, was news in Pittsburgh before this or Houston or whatever, and just came in saying, okay, white people in the suburbs are scared of inner city crime. Get me that. Like she only understands it on that level. She doesn't understand the storytelling on any deeper level because what does she know about LA? She doesn't what live does there. she know about, yeah. you know, the way these minority communities interact with the suburbs? What does she know? She's just bringing this very simplistic playbook of blood and guts sell. And so that's what you're going to get me. Yeah. How do we fix it, Jason? (laughs) (laughs) There's a, uh, when I was researching this, there's a a wonderful life imitates art story that I found, which was that, so Gyllenhaal is in uh, Venice Beach, right? Uh, This is when he steals the um, bike, right? And he puts his hair in a man bun to play the part of like someone who would be, you know, like, good at bicycles i guess i don't know i'm not good at bicycle uh but so the paparazzi um real life paparazzi which have a similar like kind of you know kind of job to this guy they're kind of all not not necessarily coyotes yeah i mean they're kind of like coyotes but they're also kind of like uh hyenas you know they're like sure well let's just bite everything chattering away at you they took a photo of his man bun uh, and released it. Uh, they sold it to um, a magazine that released it with like, this is his new look, even though it's just him mm. in a movie. Um, and it's People magazine. 
and it uh, also went with a poll uh, saying that most Americans did not approve of the man bun, <laughs> which is also like c- entirely fictional. It's just, uh, re- yeah, it's man. just creating stories. Bullshit yeah, of, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They're just like us. I loved how authentically, like, fully half of the people he interacted with uh, were like, "Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> when yeah. he tried to get the interview, I it just. I ne- as Jason said, I never thought about local news shots and the actual process of how the sausage is made. And they must, what a, like, like I understood it about paparazzis because that's infiltrated my world enough, but what a bullshit job because you're also probably getting yelled at most of the time. And the people are right to be like, like the guy who's like, get the camera the fuck out of my, I'm on the phone with 911 now. Yeah. What a terrible job. <laughs> that's but someone's got to do it but that's the thing is we don't have to do it we, we don't. don't have to do that yeah we don't except but... in driver's ed that's the only time we need to see this horrible shit you traumatize us once the thing is if they had made another version of this movie where he was instead a paparazzi or like he was trying to get celebrity dirt or whatever it right. wouldn't have worked because a lot of times we don't really feel sorry for celebrities anyway and it's like, you know, it's like, look, if you didn't want a bunch of cameras following you after you leave a restaurant with a woman who's not your wife, then you shouldn't have been a celebrity. Like, it's hard to get the audience's sympathy for that. And I think this is something that's so much more interesting because people don't realize that all journalism is kind of a version of that um, and that you are routinely destroying someone's life, like when you, you cover a story. Right. I think, and that's, again, just the efficiency of the structure of this thing. That's why it has so few characters, and each character is the perfect, uh, basically raises the stakes sacrifice in sequence. It's like, first he absorbs and destroys Rene Russo, who is complete. I'm sorry, Bill Paxton first. He absorbs and destroys. And that Bill Paxton was kind of antagonizing him. So we're like, okay, you went after him because you... He threatened your, you know, he threatened your rise to the top. Then he absorbs and destroys Rene Russo, who is somewhat complicit. It's like a symbiotic but coerced thing. And then they give us the character Rick, who I genuinely feel, and in a very efficient way, it's like you need an innocent victim. And Rick is the innocent victim who he essentially plucks from nothing, completely absorbs, coerces. Like if he had never met him, you know, he'd be alive to this day doing whatever, just chancing upon Lou Bloom took this guy and completely derailed his life to the point that he's dead in the street. It's it's uh, a great final nail in the coffin. And great ending. Kind of echoed by the final line of the film, which is, and remember, I won't ask you to do anything I wouldn't do myself, um, which is how he kills people, how he absorbs and dominates is that he is willing to go farther than the other person and he sees that as an inspiration and that's right and in fact if you that's something i only noticed on this watch in that scene he walked in front of the line of fire first 
It's true. Mm-hmm. Like he occupies geographically. I rewind. I rewound to check the space that Rick occupies when Rick gets shot. So he just by chance, you know what I mean? The the suspect right. could have woken up and shot him, but he didn't. And I think that's why Lou justifies to himself. That's another thing I think is really buttoned up in this movie is the sociopathic ability to justify why I'm not the bad guy. You see him go through that process in many instances where mm-hmm. you get hints at what oh that's why he thinks this is allowable or that's the slight the person committed like of course i mean when he so again like a well-made movie as the movie progresses the the subtext becomes comes to the surface more and more so that you can't ignore it and the crescendo is a moment where it's very clear and uh that for this theme that moment comes when he says to rick as he lies dying, you took my bargaining power. You would have used it against me again. Just admit it. I don't know. I don't know. It's okay. I know. I know. And uh, I just love that it's true. He wouldn't do any, he won't ask you to do something he wouldn't do. So he literally does it. And, you know, everything hits, everything's buttoned up. It's great. I worship at the altar of everything being where it should be. Also, (laughs) that in terms of my thing about him being like he's voicing he's the embodiment of capitalism he's voicing the concept of competition there saying that you know i because i'm willing to go this far you also must go this far you know if you're going to make yes. your product in a sweatshop with children you know if i'm going to do that now you have to do it or else i'm going to undercut your price and it's like if, mm-hmm. if i'm going to break into a house to get the video if you want to compete with me you have to do it it's like, yeah, I'm not going to ask you to do anything I wouldn't do. But he's also saying that in this system, I established the baseline. It, this baseline is established by who's willing to go the farthest, who's willing to right. take it the furthest, who's willing to like shed the most of their humanity because where someone else would not you know, enter into that situation for fear of messing up the crime scene or endangering someone. Mm. It's like, no, I'm going to do it. And either you will do it or else you won't work for me or, and you will, all the competition out there, you will lose to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it's, it's double revealing because not only is it that the system allows or enables people to move the ethical goalposts at will, at willy nilly, you know, like, but also that when it's not just he it's not just the society that has a flaw it's also he is highly corrosive so it's like here's how the people the sharks the movers and shakers i guess of the industry will take advantage of it and here's how they corrode the you know integrity of the job or the integrity of the community um by taking advantage of this enormous flaw in the community likewise if which is like human nature, I mean, which is that we're fascinated by violence and death. Of course. I don't think you can blame humans for being fascinated by violence and death. What we need to find are systemic ways to, that doesn't mean you have to give it to us, a steady drip of fascinating, gory deaths, you know? You shouldn't always just get what you want, but it is in capitalism's nature for someone to find a way to anything that we crave, which includes fear. We, on some level, we become addicted to narratives that fill us with concern um, because it makes us feel secure that, well, at least I'm aware, right? At least I'm on guard. I got to watch the news and stay on guard for possible dangers. Um, there's an addictive nature you to that. And, uh, it sounds like local news is the breeding ground for it, but 
it seems to have at this point infested every strata of our thinking, at least in this country, which is, uh, that's very interesting to me that like this movie is probably just missed the window where it doesn't have to go into the theme of anti-surveillance or because it was so crazy to me watching it in 2020 the scene where he goes to a pawn shop and buys a camcorder and just goes up to a crime scene and starts filming the police that would be an act of blm solidarity protest right right like if i drove by that guy today i'd go Good on you, man. Yeah, defund the police, bro. Film them. Make sure we got cameras on them. And uh, it almost has this whole resonance that I'm pretty sure is not intended. And like, I don't know what I can't remember exactly what year this movie came out, but I feel like it came out just in time 2014 to not have to address that any later. Mm -hmm. And it would have been weird or I don't know. Yeah, there's. I also have a sneaky suspicion that it works as a metaphor. I don't know if it was intended. It probably wasn't. But it's just right at the time where uh, there's like a conversation about Facebook uh, and this movie. It's it's like I keep thinking about it because it, consider it, considering it came out in 2014, it's about a sociopath who doesn't care about privacy or breaking laws in order to raise a business into the stratosphere, right? Mm-hmm. That it feels very much like don't you see what's happening right now like in general uh like but obviously that's what that's another reason that i think of it as like a um love sonnet to fincher because it has that social contract aspect fincher is concerned with social contracts that's definitely true yeah well i mean just in in general he he, he's like let's follow a villain you know Mm. because like he's Zuckerberg is the villain of that film. Um, and it's just like, I, I don't know. It just seems very in tune with that t- time. I also love that uh, you said it's structurally taxi driver because one of my notes in all capitals is this movie is so much better than Joker, <laughs> but it reminds yeah, me yeah. of Joker in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just that he's in a car. A lot. No, it's, it's that you're mostly... following a force of evil that you come to understand. Mm-hmm. And it has a societal message at the end. The Joker's was just yes. like, don't be mean to me or I'll shoot you. It was just so basic to me. Yeah. But I love yeah. this one. I 100% I'm gonna get some shit agree for with that. that. I think yeah. this, I think somehow, even though this was made several year, years before, it's so much more relevant to 2020 than Joker is like Joker to me. Yeah. And I know it's a beloved movie. Mm-hmm. It is. It, in my view, it is a creator's, a creator, a writer who is not super adept at understanding people. It's like his explanation of what makes someone like the Joker, the Joker. And I think he misses it completely. Whereas here, like Jake Gyllenhaal's character, if you're trying to build like a symptom of like, this is a case study and what's wrong with the world, it's so much better because the whole thing is he's just following incentives. He's just doing, Mm. he's going where the money is. And then even the thing in terms of structure, like I think it's on the the page 60 turning point moment is when he enters the house with where the shooting was. Isn't that about when that happens? Isn't that how they structured it? Yes. And can I point something out that blew my mind? He literally, it's a shot where you're looking at him and he has the camcorder in his hand up to his eye and he pans it from left to right. So for a split second, the camera pings camera, if you know what I mean. He is pointing the camera directly at us at the (laughs) very instant 
that the uh, that he steps over the threshold and cannot return. He's literally becoming like the postcard symbol of you're complicit in this too because you're watching me watching you and the music crescendos at that moment like it's obviously intentional and it's just like man i love a movie where you can pause it and be like this is just a fucking political cartoon of what the movie's about they gave us a postcard yeah and yeah it's that's a beautiful moment and it's the moment where instead of simply recording the violence he starts taking part in it because he's going to intentionally yes. omit some footage from this in order to cause another crime later that he can then film. He's basically going to create a situation and that's the movie's thesis moment because it would be one thing if you were just criticizing the audience for wanting violence and then they respond to that need by recording the violence that happens to be occurring. But there's mm. a moment where the media's coverage of things like we talk about it in mass shootings, like that they always occur in bursts because the next shooter wants that coverage and wants that fame. And suddenly you realize, oh, there's actually a moment where the, a place where the media coverage is triggering the phenomenon, where the media created the violence and that the, the police's attitude toward certain people is based on what they themselves have seen on the news. And that when you have, you know, a small town or a suburb who demands that their police act a certain way, it's based on what they saw on the news. And everything we cover from school shootings to gang violence to drugs, everything else, it winds up precipitating what comes next because the news is not occurring in a vacuum. Like people react based on what they see. So they're the yeah. symbolism of it's like the market can claim to be neutral. Like, hey, we're just giving people what they want. And it's like, no, capitalism creates wants and then turns around and acts blameless when it gives things to to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a process of normalization. You create people's perception of the world which includes the things we want and what you should strive for and of course in america the big overriding one that's sort of sewn into our dna still is capitalism because it's so foundational to our system is getting the high score it's a big deal for a lot of people it's it's almost an american instinct uh i think to value people based on their position as far as like Rags to riches, pulled themselves up by bootstraps. They're so rich now, you wouldn't even believe. They must be important. They must be really and, good. And there's symbols. There's artifacts that reveal oh, man. success to the us. Phrase, the stuff like a car or yeah. a girlfriend it's, or a boyfriend. The phrase, it's only business, is so weird to me. Wait, so you can do something evil or amoral because it's only business? Well, it's just business? What is that? Why? Why is business a place where you should be amoral? It still impacts the fabric of our reality and therefore our lives. Why is business exempt? I think that's a uniquely American idiom. Just yeah, or if, if I trick you into buying, paying 10 times more what something is worth and I say, well, it's just business. It's like, no, I've, I've harmed you. I have done yeah. harm to you. Yeah. I tricked you into buying something worthless. I, I got you to, to buy the, Buyer this, beware. Little, this bottle of, mm. of snake oil pills because I made you insecure about your weight. And then I gave you this weight loss herb that does nothing. And I charged 50 bucks for it. And it's like, Hey, nobody put a gun to his head. It's like, yes, you did. You sowed fear into this person and then turned around and sold them a cure to the fear. And it's the same thing with, right. I think that's why you need the character, Rene Russo's character. And her name isn't Nina? 
in yeah, the movie. Yeah, that's right. It's Nina, yeah. She's, the reason you need her as a contrast is because in some ways she's profiting exactly the same way that, that Lou is. But she's in a place where she can still tell herself, look, the audience is garbage. They want blood and guts. So that's what I'm going to give them because that's my job. If I don't do it, they'll just hire somebody else. Like she can kind of distance herself because, hey, I'm not causing the crime. Mm-hmm. But of course, when stuff yeah. starts coming in that could only have occurred if the person participated, she happily takes it. And it's almost like she faces this person who's kind of a mirror image of herself and shows her her true face. It's like, this is the person you will not admit to being, which is that your audience fears crime because you fed that fear. Because if you have a newscast that does not have a death in it or some sort of tragedy, you freak out because you know your rating is going to be down. So you, you start every day with like, okay, what's the fire? What's the blood on the pavement that we can open this newscast with? And she's like screaming at him on the one episode they don't have that because it's going to tank their numbers. But the idea that she is creating her own demand for the product, she would easily like tell herself that's not true. But in the same way that, you know, like selling an addictive substance to somebody, it's like, well, they can choose to just not smoke. It's like she's in a position where she can distance herself. And Jake Gyllenhaal's character is more honest because he just openly states I'm going to do this because this will make me the most amount of money. And it's like just having him say out loud what all of them are actually doing is enough to be chilling. Yeah. And we have, I mean, we have a current president who out loud chose as his defense, the line of thought, if you uh, leave a legal loophole and I use it to steal millions of dollars, that's fine. You made the loophole. And uh, that's crazy to me that we've reached the level of Americanness where like, that's right. He got his. I That's correct to me. All's fair in business. And it's, and it's not just the, him. People find that endearing. They find it as winning the system. Right. Gaming the system. By doing yeah. stuff. People yeah. love that. I also love how and, they execute that moment Jason's talking about with the only time she seems aroused by him and it's shot in profile like they're about to kiss in like romantic silhouette mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's she says her tone changes she's more breathy yeah, she yeah. says i want it obviously how much do you want it you tell me it's literally like their sex their sex play is the fact that he's about to hand her a video that will get them a 10 share it's great mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And he has pulled it's her down to where he is. And that's, yeah. again, yes. that's that's the overarching point, that there's a gravity to people like this, the same as there's a gravity to a president like Trump. And I'm sure some listeners don't want to get hear us get off on a Trump tangent. Mm-hmm. But, but the idea that subsequent presidents, you're almost now playing by Trump rules, because once he established that you can just do this and get away with it, it's like this is the new rule now. Like it's, it's harder. It's very hard to pull those norms up again. And so that's kind of the thing here is like he has seduced her because she's seen like she's now in his world. And the the thing is, you know, by the end, he's employed people and told them you're now living by my rules. And that's like the overall theme is like there's this downward gravity to people like this. Yeah. The story of American journalistic integrity and I guess to, you know, the world is one of the most interesting narratives of our generation or of the generations alive right now because it's 
we're seeing basically this kind of like what Lou Bloom does in this movie is just constantly uh, decimate the integrity of everything, the jobs that he arrives in. Um, He's basically just raping the culture. Um, And that is kind of what we have. Like, I remember it was like Cody, who was the first one who put in my head, Cody Johnston, uh, he put in my head like uh, when people are like when journalists are asking questions, uh, you know, at a press conference and they don't slam like Trump or someone like that uh, hard enough. And it's like, why aren't you asking the right questions? It's all so obvious. And he's just like, why don't we do that? And there is no answer. We don't. We have this system where we basically say this is the way things are done. This is how you treat people. And then people take advantage of that and use it for their own gain. It's just one of those things that I think is super salient and super true about life. And that's what makes it one of the better movies of two. I mean, it's 2014 with this and whiplash, probably the two best films that I've seen in the last since then five, six years comes to mind, but yeah, yeah, there's a, but they nail it. And, uh, it's, I think you're absolutely right that we're living at a time when humanity is grappling with and will either figure out or not its relationship to storytelling because media in the historical perspective media is so dominant in our lives now humans love stories and uh i love stories that's it's the you know it's the flow that i want to be a part of for the duration of my life but at the same time we sure have weaponized to um, to like a doritos flavor blasted bliss point level um, storytelling and media's ability to fabricate realities that don't actually exist in any way we want to mm. live in bubbles that are parallel universes that have no connection to anything, but are reinforced by infinitely available self-reinforcing media. Uh, it's, you know, algorithm defined and, and shifted around and it's just all, it's crazy, man. And it's, it's, I do think that you're right that that's something notable about this time in human history. A hundred, two hundred years from now, I think we'll be interested in how did we figure out whether storytelling poisons us or not? Is there a way around this? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. And is there a way around fake fake Facebook stories? Essentially, are yeah. like ruining yeah. our brains. Yeah. It's uh, it's surprisingly on point for a 2014 film. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprisingly. Well, it, this is something that it, we talked actually a lot about Wise in Journalism School, which is this concept of you are making a decision when you choose what stories you're telling. Like you don't have to lie to people. You don't have to fabricate anything. You can make you can create any reality you want just by carefully selecting what you tell people. And the moment, like, for instance, the moment you lead off a newscast, like people assume that's the the most important story, right? It's the lead story. The moment you put that story there, you have biased the audience because you have announced this is what's important. Mm -hmm. So so no matter how you report it or what you say, the moment you put that shooting, you know, or a drive-by shooting in, in your lead spot, you have told the audience, this is the most important thing that happened in the city today, which would be fine if you were trying to tackle some sort of 
real solution to that problem instead of just entertaining people by giving them action, by giving them you know, pictures right. of bullet holes and broken glass, which makes for cool visuals and blood, you know, bright red blood on the pavement. It just, it, you know, if you were creating something that it's like, hey, here's how we need to attack this problem instead of just making, saying the only solution to this problem is for you to keep watching our newscast. That's that's the thing. And the, the one, you can blow people away with the statistic, but the year that the Columbine shootings happened was in a year when we had seen, I think, an all-time low in school shootings, even with that added in. And you tell people that, they wow. like, well, how is that even possible? It's because a typical school shooting happens in the inner city between two minorities on a playground and a couple people getting shot. And nobody cares. That doesn't make the news. It, we, it, we, it only makes the news in right. terms of if it has a dramatic visual or if there's some threat to, you know, a tourist is killed, a white person is killed. They were white but, and they were wearing black trench coats. It has visual appeal, so to speak. Yeah. And so the, the idea that, oh, my gosh, a shooting on our sacred school grounds, that there are right. now guns in our schools. It's like, okay, there are schools in inner cities that had metal detectors at the doors. To stop kids because every kid right, had a gun. Right, long before Columbine. Long right. before Columbine, yeah. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s and, you know, as cities descended into violence and you have these neighborhoods that where the news crews just don't ever go unless it's like on safari. Like, look at this exotic location where all the houses are falling apart and all the, the apartment buildings are all run down. Like, it's just a backdrop instead of, you know, look, this is a blight on our city that we've allowed this to happen. What can we do? So the idea is that you never heard about it when it was in, you know, Compton or name, name your city that was in rough shape back in the 90s. Um, but then the moment it, it happens in this, you know, Colorado suburb, it's like, oh, my gosh, it happened right here. Like, like among these type of people, among, you know, people with white upper middle class parents. And the implication is, well, now it's important. See, now it's a problem. Now we got it. And so we, we did all of this completely stupid and pointless, like anti-bullying stuff, even though the Columbine shooters were not bullied. But it doesn't matter. The fact that they were bullied gots, that was a story that the local news came up with basically in the parking lot. That was the narrative they wanted to tell. Um, and the fact that, you know, the violence had been rampant for decades, that it had, you know, been something that they had been working on behind the scenes and that we had kind of otherwise hid it from view. It wasn't a story till it came to the suburbs. How goddamn irresponsible. Well, yeah, that's fascinating stuff. On my end, there was a dog barking mournfully in the distance. I really hope that carried over in that silent beat. <laughs> that was actually my dog. Could you hear it over my mic? Is that? Oh, nice. Did it? Did it? Did it ruin the mood of what I was trying to say, or did the dog? No, I it? no. I think it punctuated it perfectly. Sad, sad it's enough. like the dog barking dog at the barks. end of the trial when the guy gets shot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, what else, guys? I have a few more notes. I'd love to go through of just stuff yeah. I appreciated on this watch that I I saw for the first time. Um, you'll, I mean, you'll unlock the whole movie if you just go in thinking, all right, he's a coyote, he's a coyote. <laughs> um, there's a lot yeah. there, but aside from that stuff, I loved how many instances there are of frames where we see it's like 
constantly you are looking at it's like the x's in the departed you're looking at um that sign that with the symbol of two lanes merging or two lanes splitting that's everywhere Mm -hmm. and of course it culminates in the thing i got on the first viewing because it's very in your face of like the horror is he's dividing Uh, you know the final shot where the two vans split off and go in opposite directions it's like Mm -hmm. he's spreading the infection the blood cell split and it went down two arteries Mm -hmm. but I didn't notice till this viewing that they foreshadow that constantly with the merge sign. And I love that the merge sign, well, what does the merge sign represent? Opportunities for a car crash. That's the most frequent Mm -hmm. place you're going to crash is merging or trying to uh, split. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, I wanted to talk about the score because the first time I saw this movie, I thought it's one flaw was the score. And uh, Jen, who is a, like more music minded than film minded. All she could Mm -hmm. think about was how she hates the score and thinks it ruins the movie because it doesn't fit the, the scary mood. But I realized something this time and I turned to her and I was like, I take it back. I love the score. It's perfect. I wouldn't change a note because I love because it's the movie he thinks he's in. Exactly. Every time, the score builds and it's like fucking explosions in the sky music when they win the big football game. But it's mm-hmm. when he is finally successfully coercing someone into humiliating themselves and just giving him what he wants. Like when he moves the bodies in it's, the crash. It's like inspirational yeah. music. Like you're watching it's like Friday Night Lights. Will yeah. Smith in Happiness, like solve a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. And I thought it was clashing yeah. until I realized, <laughs> oh, that's what he thinks is he's like, my career is blossoming. It's it's great. This is great. <laughs> so now mm-hmm. I love the score. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, we got to mention the line. What if it wasn't that I don't understand people, but instead that I don't like them, which is just chilling. Uh, the other line I wrote down <laughs> uh, that I just think is a great piece of screenwriting because I'm a sucker for when the Coen brothers do this all the time, when uh, dialogue is really repetitive, but in a way that doesn't seem forced. But when you think about it, you go, it's crazy how many times I said it's forced. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, there's an office line where he's like, uh, I can't believe that I just said that, that I said that or whatever. <laughs> and then, um, but the, sorry, Jen came in to, uh, tell me some dog news editor. I think you'll have to cut that out. That was too awkward. Okay. Um, but anyway, and now I'm going to find the note. Okay. Okay. So I love when they repeat dialogue. I just repeated myself fitting. Anyway, the line is what if by saying no, you fuck it up. Is that what you're saying? I didn't say that. Well, I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, I don't know what to I say. I love how when that plays out, you just don't notice that it's so repetitive. Um, right, yeah. It's it's rhy- It rhymes, as what's-his-name yeah. would say. Okay, last but not least, I saved my favorite note for the end. I find it very rare that a film is able to empathize with sociopathy. And by empathize, I mean the dictionary definition of like see the world effectively with nuance through their eyes from their experience. Because let's remember that being sociopathic must 
be terrible, a terrible feeling, I imagine. And it's a mental illness that exists and some people are afflicted with. It's a mental illness that we are scared of and that could be part of a misleading narrative. Um, I read a very interesting piece years ago that really stuck with me about how a lot of sociopaths who have been diagnosed and know that they're sociopaths uh, run Fortune 500 companies but don't, and are embarrassed, don't admit to people that they don't feel emotions, you know? Um, but right. it does, it does. There tend to be a lot of highly successful sociopaths because they uh, sort of replicate, I, I guess the working theory is, in the absence of normal emotional, like we get dopamine hits from emotional interaction and they don't. They get dopamine hits by, through success and victory and competition. So it becomes, that's what I do because that's what gives me pleasure. Um, and the moment when he is in the film studio and set, looks around in wonder and says, on TV, it looks so real. That moment brought, like, I got tears in my eyes because of the beauty of, like, the art I was witnessing. Because to me, that is an act of filmmaking empathy. Mm. Because to mm. understand sociopathy on such a deep level as to make the character, who's the sociopath, he's wowed by... It's the most emotion we ever see from him. He's like touched right. and he's yeah. wowed by it's the only time he doesn't derive pleasure from conquering something. He's wowed in the way of like he's in a cathedral, like he's in awe of the fact that there is a discrepancy between what media represents and what it really looks like. He literally yeah. loves the difference between real reality and storytelling because that's what he is like. He lives his life representing he lives his life playing in the difference between what's true and just what he's going to present to the outside world as all sociopaths or most sociopaths find themselves imitating human emotion which he does constantly to manipulate right. people i i really give it to gyllenhaal for that moment because you do get the sense that it's not a thing that he's doing to look the part like in it's his like only it's not genuine moment it's actually genuine you you feel it and that is a that's a subtle nuance to play yeah uh and i don't know uh i'm pretty sure it was intended because i got it and they the people but the filmmakers here are you know very subtle um you know with that that kind of he's stuff he's in love with like media they, because it can manipulate people and he empathizes with that that's so cool <laughs> yeah yeah manipulation incarnate yeah it's it's kind of a wonderful yeah a nice he's like touch. at the altar of what is his god essentially mm -hmm. Ooh, yeah exactly fucking so good movie we, do either of you Ooh, have we. things that you, you do think are flaws or you wish the movie had executed differently Personally, no, this is one of question. my, that's why I like, there's no, no such thing as my, f I mean, there's a favorite movie, but there's no best movie because they can talk about so many things, of course, but I think it's a flawless movie. I can't find a misstep other than it would just be adding things that it's like you could add that, but for efficiency yeah, exactly. sake, you don't have to. Yeah. It's tough to, it's tough to discuss films in that way for me as well. Uh, because of what Mike just said, uh, the only addition I'd give is that um, it definitely, it definitely does feel like it's part, of, like it's made of um, things that came before it. But I don't think that that's particularly a bad thing. I mean, there's a reason why I think it's so, like a, a love song to Fincher, and it feels like it's a Fincher, a Fincher-esque uh, 
protagonist. Uh, but I think that's all intentional. I think it's supposed to make you go, these themes are universal. Mm-hmm. These things, this is a, like a song that plays on a loop. Um, and so seeing the city look like that, you know, um, you know, the lenses all the way down to the lenses that they choose to shoot it, um, all feel very intentional and intentional and tempered, uh, which is what I'm looking for. Uh, yeah. Did you, was there anything that you got hung up on Jason? I mean, I feel like coming from the local news yourself, you probably wouldn't, like you said, there were some exaggerations that we wouldn't have noticed. Well, yeah, and and that part that's fine. I mean, it's a movie, you know. It's because um, obviously in re- real life you do have distance, and if like if you get caught doing certain things, you can, you know, the, like the stations could be punished, their F- FCC mm. license could be threatened. Like there are things keeping it in check. Like it serves more as a metaphor than anything. But there's a couple things that are minor. One. The opening scene where he's selling the scrap and he gets caught because he's literally just stealing their fence. Isn't he just mm. some yeah, manhole um, covers, some copper wiring? Yeah. Yeah. Before he sells it, he gets caught by a security guard and they show him like to get away. He like attacks the guy and it, mm. it, it cuts to black, but it shows him. Takes his watch. Yes. You'd see him like wearing the guy's watch. I would not have included that because I think it's better the structure I discussed where it's a slow burn where you realize what that boundary where he directly attacks somebody and maybe kills them or whatever they imply there is one that he doesn't cross again. Like you're in terms of the arc you're trying to display. I felt like that was them. You're absolutely right. You could have cut that. It would have been stronger. Yeah. But I think in modern filmmaking, where they you have to do like that in media res thing where you've got to have some action at the beginning to grab the viewer and then you can do the slow burn. I think if they had made this movie in the 70s, you don't get that. You just you see him. He's kind of a loser. He's trying to make money. And then you see him cross these boundaries and you realize, oh, I'm watching a monster here. And the, the slow reveal of that. I don't know that an audience in 2014, like any focus group they showed this to. Mm-hmm. Like by the time he starts really crossing boundaries, cause it's like 50 minutes into the movie where he forces her to like have sex with him. It's 60 minutes in where he basically Goes breaks into, into an house. active crime scene. Yeah. Like that's a long time to make people wait now just the way, yeah, cause like horror movies, same, same thing. Like they've got to have an opening scene where you see the monster and then they'll circle back to the family moving into the house. You can't just open on a family moving into the house. Because audience will sit there and say, what, this is just a movie about a family that moves into a house? It's like, mm-hmm. no, hold on. They'll get to the ghost. It's got it. It's a slow burn. Um, and then the other thing is I feel like I Jake Gyllenhaal plays this so – he is so creepy and reptilian and everything about his his hair and his mm-hmm. eyes. and like, I, I, I know he put a tremendous effort into everything from his posture to the the frequency with which he blinks or doesn't blink. You know, none of that stuff is natural to Jake Gyllenhaal. That is him wearing the suit of a creepy slime ball. I personally think it's scarier if he looks completely normal, if he just looks like a guy, but that's, uh, again, they wouldn't allow me to make a movie like this. Oh, he does seem creepy, yeah. 
inherently because yeah and he's like transparent like he's the type of person if he showed up at your house in the middle of the night you would not open Mm -hmm. the door for him because he looks crazed oh no he's got that weird yeah his eyes are too big yeah Yeah. he he like doesn't know what to do with his face and everything about his mannerisms is kind of creepy and oily and and alien whereas if he's just not even like an over-the-top you know because he's not going to be charismatic but if he's just like kind of a quiet normal person who's just struggling to get by and you slowly it slowly unveiled what he is um that, to me that's scarier because the whole point is that you you don't wear your sociopathy on your face you don't you don't wear your the, the things that are broken in your brain don't always show mm-hmm. or else society would be completely different right. um that's actually one of the one of the weird things about trump is that he looks like what he is it's actually fascinating that he it actually did bubble to the surface of his skin that it what's scary about society is that it's so often Actually, now that I was going to use Mark Zuckerberg as an mm-hmm. example of someone who looks normal but is actually not, but actually, mm-hmm. no, he's he's also creepy. You can tell he's a creep. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Harvey Weinstein. No, you could tell. You can kind of tell yeah, a lot yeah, of no. the time. <laughs> <laughs> Who's well, like Danny DeVito seems like a sweetheart. No, so it goes that way. Can it go the other way? <laughs> but uh, anyway, I guess <laughs> well, pointing me just from a cinematic point of view. <laughs> My whole thing where I want the slow un- unveiling of what he is, that it's better if he just, if he doesn't, if he looks completely normal, yeah. he's not, you know, he, but um, again, that's, I, I think I'm, if, if you talk to someone who actually knows what they're doing in film in terms of costume and stuff like that, like I think Jake Gyllenhaal knows a little bit more about it's, how to play a character. Yeah, than, Cause then you're losing the. The fact that he actually emanates a scary energy keeps you invested from scene to scene. You know, it keeps you That's remembering what true. he is. Yeah, it's just the it's just the role. It's just who he's playing. I don't know. I want to defend the, the beginning of sequence. the movie. Uh, I don't think you can cut it. I or but rather, you, I'd prefer. Can you see how you it did. elegantly makes the ramp up perfectly smooth if you do cut it? Uh, yes and no. Um. Because then you lose it because the movie's already bookended between that and the result, which is the final scene. Um, what I like about the first scene is that it shows where you came from, which is like petty crime. Mm-hmm. And that's like a necessary piece of the puzzle for me. The other thing is to the argument that the violence is like singular and like out of place relative to the crimes that he does later. I think it's just the world he's infiltrating during the span of the movie that doesn't allow just like blanket assault. That's for streets and in like the shadows, Mm. you can get away with that stuff. So we know what kind of predatory beast Lou Bloom is. It's just that he can't evoke all or he can't uh, use the all of that 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 strategy. Uh, in the rest of the movie because he's surrounded by cops he's you know like but he's yeah if it's a rental cop he'll he'll beat him up and take his his watch yeah that's the kind of guy we're dealing with so i i see how it i guess i see how it is smooth in terms of like you would start from you would be more surprised and go to you know like a hundred but like i don't think i think it's fine to not like it's fine to not start at zero. It's fine to start at a place where it's like, okay, this guy's even mm-hmm. lower than, uh, even lower than what like a, a blank slate would be. This guy is a actual villain. I think that that is 
necessary in kind of bookending the movie uh, with his success and saying that like, yes. And it was good story, right? He, he did a good job. You rooted for him. Yeah. Um, it sends that message and delivers home kind of the satire of it. Uh, so yeah, that's just my defense of it. Not too shabby. As I said, okay. or referenced earlier, I think my only issue would be, it's weird to me that someone filming cops is evil but i don't think there's any implication that they're trying to make there i think it's just a thing i think now because of 2020 and i'm looking back at it yeah 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 i'm like yeah do film uh, the cops <laughs> do film the cops but don't uh, harass the guy a... who's on the phone with 911 though don't no. drag the body and so don't on don't drag the body you never drag the body that's where they get you when you start dragging and then bodies. does he in the house does he cause someone to die or just allow them to die there's just someone dying in any film okay because i i didn't uh, notice I, anyone being alive but he says to rick someone was alive in the house and i didn't even notice that i think uh the first body that he not the first body because there's the entryway is the guy yeah. on the ground. I think the woman on the couch you, you is can breathing see slight or something. breathing. Man, yeah. the way the news anchors, it feels so realistic. They cast great news anchor types, didn't they? But the mm. way the news anchors talk about the baby crib is so fucking morbid yeah. and opportunistic. It's like grotesque. And I also I love, love that it. Uh, the guy's reminder of like video production news every a like, professional news gathering service yeah uh, lou bloom you it's want just, it all yeah you're... i mean that is over the top i guess that's a criticism but i think it's it's supposed you know that's what you're yeah. supposed to no do. the end has to be he's triumphant i love it yeah speaking yeah. of triumphant endings my butt um jason please <laughs> Uh, let me ask you this first. Will we ever hear from you again? Or after this slew of promotion for your book, are, is, it, is it done? Are you hanging up the podcasting spurs? No, I, it's, uh, it's by its law that I have to be on podcasts every now and then just as a, a white yeah. person in my, in, in my field. It's actually I can go to jail if I don't do podcasts. If I don't have my own, then it's like, well, at the very least, you have to be on other people's. Well, consider us your parole right. officers, so I'll have you back soon. But, but I know you're here with a very particular agenda. Please deploy it now. Uh, yeah, I've got a brand new book out called Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick which uh, I we'll bleep picked that. this pick this. Yeah. Cause uh, it's, this is a family show. Um, they picked this movie because <laughs> yeah. that this, it takes, it's a science fiction novel. It takes place in a future where basically everyone has, it willingly has a camera on them that there's kind of like an internet of cameras where all the feeds are connected and you can kind of see anything at any time. And among other things is kind of an exploration of what that, does to the world uh and it's a world where you step out of your door and you are performing you are on camera you are now playing a character um and so the title being zoe punches the future and the dick you can derive a lot about the tone of the book from that title mm -hmm. uh that that's part of why i want to talk about this because it gets into themes like that and it's it's a that's a world in which people stage elaborate crimes partly because it is instant worldwide fame and you know this is a world in which when there's a car chase 
you don't need a helicopter chasing it as the news stations in LA will have. Yeah. Uh, it's, it shows up on this, this network of everybody's camera feeds because it just hops from any, as long as there's a camera nearby and there would be one on the car and one on the utility poles and every security camera that they pass and every person they pass is wearing a little cam- camera. You can just follow the feed from person to person. And basically the internet of that era is just a, it's like a God's eye view of, whatever you want to be looking at. You can search for an event and go, whoever's got a camera nearby, you're now watching it through their camera. So it's kind of this series of books. It's the second one, um, but you can start with any of them, but it kind of is an exploration of partly of, and of what it means to live in a world where that's true. And chillingly plausible trends, right? Or I feel like that's a hallmark of the series now. I mean, there's only two, but... Like, yeah. but like when I wrote happen. the first one, they're in, the in a one, sort of a crackty style. You're extrapolating things that you think are somewhat believable, right? Yeah. And when I wrote the first one, like ring doorbells did not exist. That's a product that came right. on the market about a year after the first book mm-hmm. is called Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits. And like a year later, one, they re- everyone starts buying these cameras to put on their own doorbell. And then two, now you can go online and like browse people's doorbell cameras. <laughs> You're very Jules so, Verney. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was driving at is you are one of the sci-fi authors who is playing in the near enough future with real enough concepts that you will no doubt predict a bunch of technology that ultimately comes to pass because sci-fi authors do that left and right. Um, yeah. And I've read both books and they are phenomenal. And uh, a lot of it is chillingly plausible, and then there's aspects of it that are entirely impossible. But they're not. They're they're not depressing. I don't want people. No, to no, think it's not 1984 not... vibes or anything at all. No, they're they're fun. That's why the title is what it is because I'm trying to convey it, this is in some ways it is an escape from the 2020. It's it, there's not like. President Donald Trump. It's not Nightcrawler. It's not. <laughs> no. yeah, you're not having to like. There's not like a parallel to. I know we've got to impeach the, the whatever. Uh, it's, no, the Cheeto Man. It's it's yeah. it's someone's like the tone. Someone compared to like Futurama, where it's 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 dark, but it's also hard something sci-fi. Ridiculous there's a core of hard sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, but the you know it's it's fun. It, I hopefully I, I you know even it, I wrote it as an escape from what was going on. It cracked, so hopefully it will serve as an escape for other people. That's one of the things that drives me as a storyteller is that the idea you can pick up a book and forget about the world for a while. Absolutely. Uh, Where can it. people? Is Love there a best place to pick it up, or should they just no, Google whatever? The title? Support your local bookstores, but don't. Don't put your life at risk. <laughs> Whatever method you feel safest, don't worry about like what helps me the most. If you don't like Amazon, it's fine. It should they should have it everywhere. There's books aside from like grocery stores and stuff. Like any bookstore should have it. If not, they can absolutely get it for you. It's a mainstream release in hardcover. Uh, the other one, depending on when you hear this, it's the first book in the series is probably two ninety nine on Kindle right now. They always discount it. Uh, around the release of a new book um, so you can get it dirt cheap but if you want to start with the second one it's fine too they're not it's not like a a song of ice and fire thing where a book ends (laughs) on like a cliffhanger and then picks up it's each one is its own thing well gosh jason thank you for being here 
Hell yeah. yeah, I hope I hope we had intelligent things to say about this movie. A movie that I think most people in your listenership probably have not seen. You like think not? I would, that's what I was trying to. I was just trying to guess that. Yeah, in my mind. Because I just stumbled across it a couple of years ago on streaming. It just popped up in one of the modules on Amazon Prime. Totally missed it when it was out. I mean, this is something that's an actor I like. This is a subject. It's a genre I like. It's a subject I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. But in this media environment, you can so easily miss things. Oh, you can miss great stuff. So easy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, this popped up on, it's like, oh, you like this other thriller. Well, maybe you'll like this. And from the thumbnail, it looked like, oh, it's Jake Gyllenhaal playing the creepiest serial killer he can Mm -hmm. or something like that. It's like, that sounds fun. And no, it's like, oh, gosh. But don't miss Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick or Nightcrawler or Small Beans over at (coughs) patreon.com slash cough cough. Hey. Uh, and that's that's an episode, as Tom Ryman would say. Mm-hmm. That's a so. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. This has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.